Revelation chapter 3, going to look at the uh, beginning, the last three churches of uh, of uh, the letters to the churches that John wrote in Revelation. Hopefully it won't take us as long to get through these last three letters as it did the, the first four churches, uh, because you should, by now, you should have the background, you should have the basic setting. It's going to change a little bit uh, with, with the different churches, but pretty much you know the, the, the struggles and the pressures that they're going to be under. There's really no point in me belaboring um, all of that. So as we look at Sardis, which is the first church in, in chapter three, Sardis was uh, um, Sardis is going to be characterized as the dead church. Um, Sardis is a very interesting city in Asia Minor. It was uh, it was almost like a fortress set in the side of an Acropolis uh, uh, with huge walls. And it made it sort of like a natural citadel. It 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 would have been. Uh, you know, it would have been hard for invading armies to conquer. Yet, uh, even though the city, even though it seemed like a fortress and was built in the side of a hill and it, you know, just had all these natural, um, natural fortifications uh, based because of the landscape and, and where it was, it had been overrun and conquered several times throughout its history. Um, the Persians conquered it in uh, 546 B.C. Um, you can read about how the Persians caught the city unaware and defeated it. Uh, um, the historian Herodotus writes about that in, in his histories. Uh, and then in um, 214 B.C., um, the armies of Antiochus III conquered the city as well. And um, you can read about that in Polybius's histories. And so uh, there were times where the city had been caught unaware um, and the fortifications didn't hold for them uh, because uh, the way that the historians put it, they were a little too confident in the, in uh, their own city, in their own fortifications, in the way that their uh, city was set. Uh, but later in the, uh, in uh, uh, the first century, in the time that we're going to be talking about, the time that this letter was written, uh, Sardis was devastated by an earthquake in, in 17 A.D. Um, and so um, it was under the, the emperor Tiberius that this earthquake took place. And so Rome, under Tiberius, helped rebuild the city. Uh, it even exempted Sardis from paying taxes for five years during that time so they would have an opportunity to rebuild and, and prosper. And, and you can read about um, the, the devastation and Rome's effort to aid in the rebuilding of Sardis um, in, in Tacitus's Annals of Imperial Rome. Uh, you can get that. that I think that's a, that fr that's a free work online. You can get it uh, and read it you know, without having to pay for it. Um, so by the time that John wrote his letter to Sardis, the city uh, was rebuilt. It uh, contained um, a theater, stadium, baths, gymnasium, you know, all the things that you would expect, the things we've seen before in these cities. But um, because of all this help that uh, Tiberius and the Roman Empire uh, gave, uh, Tiberius was often called the founder of the city of Sardis. And, and there were monuments honoring Tiberius um, throughout the city. Tiberius was uh, later on, Tiberius was honored as God in the city. And by the end of the first century, the city, uh, it, ha it also had temples dedicated to the worship uh, of Augustus and, and, and other emperors. Uh, later on, um, Caligula and Claudius uh, both were revered as a god in Sardis. And th those are two more of the, the Roman emperors um, who were um, emperor during the first century. 
so uh, you can pretty well imagine that the imperial cult, which we've already looked at in depth in the previous cities, the, the worship of the empire, the worship of the emperors, uh, it was alive and well. It was thriving in the city of Sardis. Um, and, and remember that um, this was a, this was a, a political um, it was a political um, thing that was mandatory in in all these cities. Um, incidentally, I, I don't know if I mentioned it at the time, but at, when we talk about the death of Polycarp, he was he died because he refused to um, to uh, venerate Caesar. He refused to say Caesar is Lord. And you can see um, just reading through uh, Ignatius. Uh, Ignatius was. Um, um, or Irenaeus, excuse me, Irenaeus was uh, sent to Rome. He wrote seven festal letters while he was on his way to Rome to die for failing to, uh, to failing to worship the gods and, and all that kind of stuff. I think it was Irenaeus. I'm speaking off the top of my head, so I, I may I may go back and check that. But it was one of those early church writers that was just right after the first century. And so the imperial cult was alive and well in Sardis. And of course, there were also other gods. You know, the the, the gods and the goddesses of the the pagan culture and all that there were uh, the two big ones in Sardis were Artemis which is Diana uh, and, and Zeus these were the two guardians of the city's welfare so to speak in Sardis um, there were there's a a very large temple was built for these two gods in Sardis in the second century BC. That's before, uh, before Christ. So it, it was there in the first century, but, um, there were also a lot of little other gods worshiped in the city. I say little other gods. you know, there were, there were lots of gods worshiped in the city. Uh, we're going to see pretty much the usual suspects. They, you know, that we've seen the other cities, you got Athena, Apollo, Heracles, uh, we have records uh, from Sardis of festivals given in honor of, of Dionysus. Uh, there were, you know, there was others as well, but you get the point. And we also know that uh, the priests and the priestesses of Artemis, Diana, and Zeus, who were the, the, the main gods in the city, the big, the big temple was for Artemis and Zeus, so to speak. Um, the, the priests and the priestess is were they, they were very important civic positions as well. So it wasn't just like you had, uh, all the political guys over here and then you had the religious guys over here. Uh, they were melded together in the city. And so, um, you've got the Imperial cult in Sardis, of course, you got that alive and well, you've got the pagan gods. You're going to see them all over, uh, the Roman world. And then there was also a very large Jewish population in the city of Sardis. Uh, and they must've been, I, I'm just kind of extrapolating here they must have been pretty prosperous because uh, josephus uh, records the fact that the jews in sardis sent money to jerusalem um, pretty much all the way up until the time the city and the temple were destroyed in, in 70 AD. So not only was there a large Jewish population, but there was a large Jewish population that was um, that was uh, prospering enough to be able to send money back to Jerusalem uh, for an extended period of time. So um, there's a crash course on the history of Sardis. If you, you've been listening to the letters of the other cities, you probably recognize uh, the same three pressures here that we saw everywhere else, the pagan civic culture, putting economic social pressure on them, the imperial cult of the Roman state, uh, political pressure. And then, of course, you have the Jews pressuring the Christians to conform, saying that their, you know, veneration of Christ is blasphemy. But um, this conformity for all three of these these groups uh, for the believer meant a total denial of Christ. So it's not a really it's not a small matter, even though almost 
everyone would try to convince them uh, that it is. So let's just look at the letter to uh, to uh, the church in Sardis, and, and we'll just try to walk through it. And uh, we're going to see some very interesting things about this church. Um, it says, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. But you are dead. And so, once again, you got the same structure in this letter that we saw in every other letter. We start with the address, you know, to whom it is written, to the angel of the church at Sardis. We talked about who the angel of the churches uh, are at the very beginning uh, of all this. So you can go back and listen to those if you haven't already. Uh, we start with the address. Then we start with Jesus' introduction of himself using one of the uh, one of the symbols that we saw um Put forth in the first chapter of Revelation, uh, Jesus here identifies himself using the image of uh, the keeper of the seven stars and the seven spirits. And this is it's exactly what we saw in chapter one. The point here that he's making is that Jesus is God almighty. We went in depth about the seven stars and the seven spirits in chapter one. So uh, you can go back and listen to that if you need you know, to brush up on it or more details about the Old Testament background. He gets that from Isaiah. He gets it from Zechariah, the seven stars, seven spirits. And, and so you can go back and, and, and look at those uh, we've already went into a significant depth on those but what jesus is doing here is letting his church know right off the bat that he is yahweh of the old testament he is the one that has the absolute right and authority to rule he has the the seven stars were um, the seven angels of the churches and uh, the seven lampstands uh, were the seven churches and the uh, the uh, the seven spirits burn before the uh, sit before the throne in Zechariah. You can go back and here I said I wasn't going to go into it, and then I started going into it. You can go back and listen to that in uh, in chapter one. And what he's doing is just telling them that you know I know your works, and he's going to rebuke them severely. Uh, and so there's no commendation for Sardis. Uh, there's nothing that they're doing good that Jesus commends them for. So right off the bat, he's going to tell them, look, I'm the one. I'm I'm the one who holds the seven spirits. I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I'm the one that is Yahweh from the Old Testament. I'm in control and I have the right to judge. Um, so we're, we're definitely going to see that this church in particular needs to be reminded who, who the Lord is and who the ruler over the church is. Uh, we're going to see why uh, Sardis is a dead church and they are going to get... Uh, um, they're going to get a stern rebuke from him. Uh, like the other letters, Jesus starts by saying, I know your works. So that's common. We've seen it before. They have a name, which means they have a reputation for being alive. But Christ knows that that uh, spiritually they're dead. Now, it doesn't really matter how they paint themselves. Christ knows their works. He says, I, I, I know who you are. Uh, he knows their hearts. He knows the motivations as to why they're doing the things that they're doing. They may have a form of godliness and other people may laud them for, you know, they're as great spiritual believers serving the Lord in the midst of whatever. But Jesus knows the reality. He there, there's no putting on a show for him. He knows he, he tells this church, he says, I know that you're dead. Now, most likely 
the the church itself being dead here means that they're failing in their obligation to bear witness to Christ in their city. We've seen that over and again. Uh, we're going to see in this letter that uh, there were still some faithful people in Sardis. So he's not talking about every single person that would happen to pick this letter up in the church that reads it, but the church as a whole is characterized as being dead. Uh, in this letter, Jesus is going to give them nothing but warning and judgment. There is nothing commendable about the church in, in Jesus' eyes here, um, but they are obviously being commanded, uh, or not commanded, but commended a lot by by uh, all the people around, you know, by the world, by uh, probably other believers in other parts of the, of the, the countryside, because... Uh, he says they have a name, you know, they have a name that they are alive that, you know, they have a good reputation. People look at them and see, you know, they're doing good. They look good. Maybe they're, they're, uh, doing all the right things, doing the right things and looking the right way. But Jesus says you have a name, which you're alive, but, but in reality, you're dead as we, uh, as we read the letter to the, the church, we're going to, um, we're going to find, well, we're going to find not a single hint that there was any persecution going on at all. We talked about the imperial cult. We talked about the pagan gods. We talked about the Jewish population there. Um, and it, this in itself is strange to me to read the history and the the um, the demographics of, of Sardis. Uh, had one of the largest Jewish populations in Asia Minor. But in the midst of uh, persecution all around them, in cities all around them, uh, there was none. There's no mention of any persecution. There's no mention of any social economic uh, reprisals against the church. In fact, we have just the opposite. It says they have a good reputation. They have a good name. Uh, we aren't exactly told who that good name is with, but it doesn't take much brain power to think about them being um, respected and, and well-liked among the community and the people and all these things. In the midst of persecution all around them, the only plausible explanation as to why this church is not experiencing or is not you know, said to be experiencing persecution or, uh, or reprisals or, or, or social um, um, uh things is because they had all but totally compromised with the surrounding culture. Uh, they had a good name among others because they were seeking that good name among the people. They were uh, conforming. So make sure you get this. The problem is not that the church was sick and the church needed healing. Jesus said the church is dead. There were Obviously, lots of unregenerate people in the church claiming to be followers of Christ. The main problem was that the church as a whole had no interest in purifying herself, uh, had no interest in holding firm to the doctrines of Christ, bearing witness to the truth, to the culture. They were... They were the go-along-to-get-along church. And so he says, I, I know you have a name. I, I know I, I hear your name mentioned, and I know that people laud your name, and they say how alive you are and how, uh, how good you're doing. He said, but in, the rea in reality, I'm the one that's the judge. I'm the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars in my hand. I'm the one that's in control. I'm the one that has the authority, and I know your works. And you have a name that you're alive, but in reality, you're dead. And so in verse two, he gives us, uh, you know, there's some question about what it means to be dead. I just kind of gave you my uh, take on it. But if you look at the remedy 
for what he says they need to do to overcome this uh, this rebuke, uh, you kind of get a better feeling about what it means uh, for Christ uh, to tell them that they're they're dead. This is what they need to do. Uh, they are in verse two. He says, "Wake up." And strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. They're they're commanded to strengthen the things that remain. Now, in order to do this, he says they need to wake up from presumably their spiritual lethargy. They they've gotten sleepy as they were living in a pagan culture they they need to wake up they probably gotten tired of the demands of the faith which would um, no doubt bring hardship and uh, persecution all these things they they needed to wake up because their work and their lives are not complete before god that's what he says for i've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my god um, we can still see this kind of thing everywhere today many people believe that you know, the only thing God requires of them is to agree with him. Uh, believers, uh, you're not simply called to sit back and agree about the facts of the faith, agree about what God says. Christ calls his people to take up the cross, deny themselves, and to follow him, to give their lives in service to him. I, I think the idea that they needed to wake up is a good analogy for what's going on. They they have been lulled to complacency in the midst of the culture that they lived in, and they're they're no longer being a witness for Christ. It's uh, you know, it's just too hard. It's it just costs too much. Uh, Jesus says that the spark of their faith that still remains is about to die. He says, he says, you, you need to wake up. You've, you, you've, uh, you've been lulled to sleep and the things that remain in you, they're dying as well. They're about to die. Uh, one thing you can be sure of is that when you start compromising, it just gets easier and easier to continue to go down that course. They, that they need to be jarred awake and strengthen the things that remain. Um, is there anything left in you that desires to stand for Christ? You better wake up and strengthen what remains because none of us are in neutral. You're either going backwards or you're going forwards. Um, as far as the church is concerned, uh, the ones in the church who had remained faithful in, in this church in Sardis, uh, who were fighting to be a witness in the world, and we're going to see them here in just a second, um, they, you know, they no doubt felt outnumbered. They were fighting a losing battle. You know, the whole church is, seems like it's capitulating to everything that's going on, and they're probably standing against it. Unless the church rises from their spiritual sleep, they're going to find themselves unable to ever bring the church in Sardis uh, back into the light. Uh, and it's only Christ, the holder of the seven spirits, who can empower this church to uh, revive. Uh, we're going to talk about that more in, in a minute. He tells them to wake up, and you have to strengthen what remains. Well, what exactly does that mean? What What are you saying when you say strengthen what, what remains? He's going to explain it to them in, in verse 3. He says, so, therefore, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So uh, notice what Jesus says is the remedy for their ailment. 
What does it mean to wake up? What does it mean to strengthen the things that remain? He says that they have spiritually fallen asleep. They need to wake up, strengthen the things that remain. And and so now he's going to tell them how to do that. The remedy for their problem is not higher insight or deeper teaching. They're not called to have a fresh experience of revival or, or pray that something new would happen. Instead, Christ tells them they must remember what they have heard. And keep it. And they must repent. They must remember the word they received and heard. They must remember the fundamental gospel of Christ. And they must remember who they are. They are to remember the way that they first responded to the gospel. They remember to remember the the initial truths of the gospel and to live in that gospel. They got to remember the, the you know the exhortations of Christ to be a witness to the world, to stand firm in the face of persecution. They they they've got to keep these things. It's not just something to remember and hold in your mind. It's not just something to agree with. It's something to be kept. He says, remember what you received and heard, and you keep it. And repent. That's what Christ calls them to do in order to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Um, I find this, just from my own personal perspective, I find it very instructive for us as believers today because so many people live the Christian life in a just a nominal sense. You know, they, they're Christian in name only. I'm Christian because I'm not Muslim and I'm not Jewish and I'm not, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, they when they start to feel lethargic or even even true christians even believers actual believers who've been born again when they start to feel um, spiritually dry lethargic or something like that they feel like they're somehow missing something or or things are just uh you know the things that uh, are most common to us are the things we take for granted when when the it just seems to lose its luster a little bit um, or just when they're disobedient in the area of living as a witness for Christ, something as simple as that. When, when these things happen, uh, most people go seeking for some new experience or some new deeper teaching. I must be missing something. Let me go dig into what this says or get dig into what this other person has taught on this thing. And maybe that's going to uh, reignite something in me or whatever. I need to learn something new. When the reality is that the gospel is the power of God. Uh, the gospel itself is the only path to relationship before God. It's the only path to spiritual revival, whether we're talking about an individual or whether we're talking about a church. You want revival, you preach the gospel. You want revival in your life, you uh, you remember and 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 go back to the fundamental gospel and you live in those truths. You trust those truths. You you delve ever deeper into what Christ has done for you. It's the gospel that does all these things. I wrote uh, the first book that I wrote. It's called Reclaiming Victory, and it's about living in the gospel, not running off to try all these new fads and these principled programs and uh, try to do better and live better. The gospel is what brings joy. It brings uh, peace with God, and it also brings an, an inner peace when you know that that um, that it's finished. And when I say these things to you as a believer, especially if you've been a believer for a long time, when I say these things to you, you, you know that you know the gospel. You know that sin is forgiven. You know that uh, you're perfect in the sight of God. Uh, but we we tend to uh, we tend to. Uh, we tend to want to move away from that truth as we, we try to, quote unquote, grow 
in in, uh, in our relationship with God and all those kind of things. We we tend to just focus on doing better, living better, and then when when we don't grow after we try really hard, well that that's kind of frustrating. And then we say, you know what? I'm just going to take my ball and go home. I'm just going to relax. I'm just going to do what I do. I mean, it's not going to make any different. But the reality is, we have gone away from the the place of growth, and that is the gospel. We tried to do it in our own works. We tried to do it in our own strength. And when when nothing happened, when we didn't see the results that we wanted, we thought, well, I'm just going to you know go do my own thing. When the reality is, what we should be doing is remembering. Uh, and, and living in that gospel and, and keeping those things that we know are true, going back to uh, the basics. So, um, you know, that's a little free sermon there. You can take that or leave it. Uh, the people of Sardis, though, they're called to repent. They're called to live in accordance with the truth that they have already received. Did you get that when we read the verse? They are called, he says, remember what you have received what you have received remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent they're not called to go into something new or anything like that to fix what is happening in their church they're called to live in accordance with the truth that they already have they must repent and turn back to the gospel saturated lives that that first characterized him. if not christ is going to come he says i'll come unexpectedly uh, unexpectedly in judgment uh, against you um this coming you know that we've you know we've we've already seen this before in in other uses in the letters refers to a judgment coming to this specific church not the end time final coming he says i'm gonna notice here that that christ says the the coming will be upon you he says i'll come like a thief which you know we've seen that in the new testament before which means they won't be expecting him uh, he says they won't know the hour when he comes but he says at the very end of verse three he says and you will not know at at what hour I will come to you, you know, so it's a judgment coming upon this church in Sardis if they don't repent, if they don't remember. So they're asleep and they're spiritually dead among the culture that they're supposed to be a witness to. And Christ says the only remedy is for them to remember what they have already heard, to repent of what they're doing and to keep the word that they have already been given. Uh, verse four in uh, in Revelation three, it says, "But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." Um, so we we said this before, but the church uh, as a whole was not completely beyond hope. There were still some there who have not had not compromised with the pagan culture. The picture here is that their garments. Um, their, their garments would uh, uh, represent the purity, holiness of Christ. They're white. Uh, and he is um, uh, he's saying that uh, they have not soiled their garments. They've not been stained with the filth and pollution of the surrounding culture. Kind of put everything that we've 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 said already together They're um, they're they're told to wake up. They're told to strengthen what remains, and the way that they do that is by remembering what they had heard in the beginning and holding fast to that. And then he says, but there are some of y'all who haven't soiled your garment. You know, you, in the very first chapter, um, no, well, no, I guess 
it was the second chapter. We saw the promise that I'll give them. They'll walk with me in white. I'll give them white garments to wear. We're going to see that again in chapter four. And so it demonstrates the it was the promise of eternal life in the in the second chapter to one of the churches. Uh, but here he says he says their white garments. Uh, he's implying that those who have uh, capitulated to the culture, those who have uh, fallen asleep, uh, the people at Sardis, they they they've actually soiled uh, their garments. They had they had allowed the religious pagan world to stain them with with its influence. But Jesus says here there are still some in the church that haven't allowed that to happen. He said these people, those who are faithful in the midst of all the pressures. Uh, and that are holding fast to my name, they will walk in white with Christ because they're worthy. Uh, these people are identified with Christ in this life. They chose to be maligned and probably persecuted for their identity with Christ. Uh, and so, therefore, Christ will identify with them as their advocate before the Father. They, um, uh, they'll share in his purity and righteousness because... Um, you know the the Holy Spirit is within them. They alone are worthy, he says. But they're worthy of Him. Um, they would rather suffer than deny Him. And this is His work within them. It's not because that they're so good and they've just done so wonderful, and by their works they've they've come on in and uh, made their way into Christ's heart. They have Christ's work within them, and they have been faithful to Him because their hearts have been regenerated. And to be fair, those people that He's talking to. There, there are going to be some in the church of Sardis that are truly regenerate, that have allowed this lax attitude, this um, this um, falling away from being a witness for Christ to the culture, to uh, to come into their lives, uh, and they're going to take this rebuke because the Holy Spirit lives within them, and they are going to repent, they are going to turn back to Christ. Um, the the whole washing one's robe thing, we're going to see that later in chapter seven, verse fourteen. Um, it's identified with, uh, with the blood of the lamb in chapter seven of revelation. And, um, We'll see this image of white rose repeatedly in Revelation, but of course you already know it. It, it no doubt points to uh, the righteousness that uh, that uh, Christ gives His people. It actually points uh, back to Daniel's prophecy of an end time persecution where where the saints will be made white. Uh, you can read that in Daniel eleven thirty five. It says, "And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined." purified and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time and you see it again in daniel chapter 12 uh, verse 10 it says uh, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise shall understand so if you're following the structure of the letters uh, we've already seen, you know, we we had the address to who it's to. We had the introduction of Christ. Now we've had the rebuke and the warning. Um, this church doesn't receive any condemnation. So the next section, uh, I mean, this church doesn't receive any commendation. Let's say that. So the the next section is going to be the promise of eternal life. You know, we've seen that in every in every letter. It's the promise of eternal life for those who overcome, those who conquer. Uh, Nikao, the, it is important to remember, though, I, I can't stress this enough, the structure of the letters here, uh, because we're going to find another one of those statements here that people have used to push their uh, particular theological position. Um, but by understanding the structure of the letters, how John is structuring these letters, each one is structured the same way. 
um, the controversy pretty much resolves itself. Um, here is the, simply a promise of eternal life to those who overcome by being faithful to their calling. Uh, verse 5 says, To the, the one who overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So you can imagine where the controversy comes in. Those who persevere, he says, and overcome demonstrate their genuine faith. Now, make sure you understand that the perseverance and the overcoming of the believers is a demonstration that their faith and their salvation is genuine. They will they are the ones who are given eternal life. They are the ones who are clothed in white garments. We've already seen the meaning of the white garments, but uh, the phrase that Christ will not blot out their names from the book of life, man, has caused no end of controversy. Uh, many people take the statement, which is uh, simply a promise. I mean, it's simply a promise of eternal life, just like we've seen in every other letter. Uh, and they imply the negative. They say that uh, if Christ promises he'll never blot the names out of those who overcome, then those who don't overcome will will have their names blotted out of the book of life. So that must mean that people can lose their their salvation. They can be blotted out of the name. Uh, their name can be blotted out of the book of life. But before I just come out and tell you, you know. What I think. Let's follow the image. I mean, you probably can already guess, but let's follow the image that that Revelation is presenting here and see if we can we can tell what's going on from the text, blotting out the name of the book of life. Um, everyone pretty much knows. I mean, if you've ever even read Revelation, you know that the the book of life is a representation in the book of Revelation uh, of saved people, of people that whose names have been recorded. Um, but not too many people realize that this is an image that actually begins in the Old Testament. Uh, the idea of being blotted out of God's book first appears in Exodus, believe it or not, Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two. Um, it in this text in Exodus, uh, the people have just sinned against God by making the golden calf, you know, at the base of the Mount Mount Sinai, and Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. Moses comes back down, sees what's going on. You you know the story. He rebukes the people. In fact, many of them are sentenced to death right on the spot. And then, after all is said and done, Moses goes back up the mountain to intercede for the people in hopes that God is going to forgive their sin. And in Exodus thirty two thirty two and 33 um, it says Moses says but now if you will forgive their sin he says but if not he says please blot me out of your book that you have written but the Lord said to Moses whoever has sinned against me I will blot out of my book so in this text, the book is is the register of God's people, the God's theocratic community there, you know, as he's given, establishing them as a people on Mount Sinai. And Moses is interceding for the people. He's saying, look, if you're not going to forgive their sin, you just blot me out of your book. And God says, the one who sinned against me, I'm going to blot out of my book. It's the threat of being removed from the community uh, that God is establishing there at uh, at Mount Sinai. So to be blotted out of the book is to have one's citizenship in God's kingdom. 
revoked. It's to be uh, cast out. You can see this all through Numbers, Leviticus, every, where God gives the law. It says the one who does this will be cast out from their people. The one who does that will be uh, separated from their people. The one who, you know, you can see it over and over and over and over again in the laws that God gives. So here in Exodus, the threat of having one's name removed from God's book, it's very real. You can also see this in Psalm 69, 28, where the psalmist prays. Uh, it's, an, it's called an imprecatory prayer. Uh, an imprecatory psalm is one where uh, you're praying bad stuff will happen to the wicked. You know, you see those in the psalms. An imprecatory psalm is, you know, God let their teeth be gnashed on the rocks and let their, you know, whatever. And so it's an imprecatory psalm in Psalm 69, verse 28 against the wicked. And it says, and he's praying that God would remove them from the book of the living and they would not be numbered among the righteous. Um, and then, of course, you know, We've seen John's use of Daniel over and over again in the book of Revelation so far. So we can't pass by Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, which says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book your people will be delivered all those who have been written in the book and you know if you read the new testament of course you know that by the new testament times the book of life was seen as the role of uh, the the role of god's community god's covenant community for those who who've been saved for those who've been born again those salvation jesus references the book of life in luke chapter 10 verse 20 uh, and paul references the book of life in philippians chapter 4 verse 3 so we already know what the book is, and, and that really isn't anything new. I just said that because I told you I was going to try to corroborate my conclusions. But what many people don't see is is uh, this Old Testament picture is uh, what 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 this picture meant to the people who were actually living under Roman rule in the province of Asia in the first century, in uh, in many Greek city states. Um, and later in the cities that were subjugated by the Roman Empire, and especially in the province, province of Asia, um, cities kept detailed lists of their citizens. Um, for, uh, for an example, a legitimate child of a Roman citizen was to be registered within 40 days of his birth so that he could, you know, of course, receive the benefits of, of being a citizen. Um, and we also know we also know that when authorities in some cities pass judgment on a person for a capital crime, that person's name was removed from the list of citizens as the death sentence was carried out. Uh, you can read about this practice in a work called uh, Hellenica by a, a Greek historian called Xenophon. And uh, now Xenophon is um, admittedly it's from probably fourth century BC, so it's way earlier than the time period we're talking about now. But we also have a record of this practice in a work um, from a Greek orator and historian from the first century. His name was uh, Diachrysostom, uh, and his work was called Discourses. And so you can see it there. Um, so what Jesus says here to the people of Sardis, they would have understand uh, understood perfectly. Those who overcome, and remember, overcoming is remaining faithful to Christ, they will never be blotted out from his register. They will never be separated from him. They will never have their citizenship revoked. They will never be exiled from the community of God's people, even though, I mean, you can imagine what it was like in Sardis. 
especially if you didn't want to be persecuted, if you didn't want to be cast out or have all these consequences of being faithful, you wanted to be included. You wanted to, uh, you wanted to go with the flow, you know, and that's what was causing all the, all the problems. Uh, Jesus would want them to know you may be, you may be charged with a capital crime there in Sardis by holding fast to my name, but you won't ever be blotted out from my book. You won't ever be, have your citizenship removed. Um, they would have understood on the flip side, though, they would have understood that to fail to overcome by remaining faithful and being a witness to the culture, to, to conform to the culture and, and to become like the world, they would have understood that he's saying that that is a capital crime. But remember two things, and these are the two things you need to understand. First, remember that Jesus has already told us in Revelation, we've already seen it, that one is either a conqueror, an overcomer, or he is a traitor. There's there's no, when we're talking about overcoming and conquering, we're not talking about doing really good. We're not talking about being a super Christian. We're not talking about having your, having your works exceed a certain level before you're acceptable. We're talking about being faithful to the profession of faith that you've made in Christ. We're talking about the believer persevering in the faith. And we know that that perseverance comes by the Holy Spirit that lives within inside, inside of him. So the, the question is not, are you going to be a conqueror or are you going to be just a regular old Christian? That's not the, that's not the, the, uh, the juxtaposition that he's showing here. He's saying, are you going to be faithful demonstrating that your salvation is real or are you going to go back into the world demonstrating that your salvation is not? The question is not where the believer is doing good enough to be rewarded by having their name remain in the book of life uh, to remain faithful, which is what men whose hearts have been regenerated do. That is to be an overcomer. So um, however, however we take this statement, you cannot think that Jesus is saying you better do good enough to be one of my people. Uh, that interpretation goes against everything Jesus has said throughout the New Testament. Everything his apostles said and that we see in Scripture. And it specifically goes against what we've already seen in the book of Revelation. So you can't take it to mean however you want to take it. You know, you can't take it to mean your works have to stack up to a certain level before Jesus will accept you. That that's not even on the table. Secondly, you have to remember the structure of the letters that we've seen. What is this portion intended to convey? It conveys the same thing in every letter that is written in every single letter after the commendation or the rebuke. The overcomer is given a promise of eternal life. It is intended in every single letter to give assurance, to give encouragement to the believer who is enduring the persecution and the pressure to conform to the world. So here there is no reason to think that John has changed his structure. There's no reason to think John has suddenly in this one letter out of all seven abandoned what he has done in every other letter and say, well, this is not just a promise. This is a, a, a doctrinal element element of losing your salvation this is this is meant to be encouraging to the believer this is meant to be a, a, an assuring thing uh, it is meant to be a promise to the overcomer who has his name written in the book of life remember that at the beginning jesus said that many in sardis have a name that they're alive but they're dead so the ones who have not sold their garments and have overcome will have their names kept secure 
and safe by the Lord himself. This is meant to be an encouragement. John is using the blotting out of the name from the passages in the Old Testament, just like he has used many other Old Testament pictures to promise eternal life to the overcomer, to the one who conquers. This is something we have seen in every letter. If, um, if you're going to tell me that suddenly, uh, suddenly John has uh, in this one letter out of all seven, John changes his structure and is not giving an encouragement to the believer who is holding fast, uh, but instead is uh, is uh, making a, a statement of doctrine about the. Uh, um, the perseverance of the saints and the uh, the uh, security of salvation, you're going to have to demonstrate that from somewhere in the text because every other letter is a promise of eternal life, every single one. And, and there's no reason to think that this one is not as well. Their name will be confessed before the Father, just like Jesus said that those who confess his name before men. So you can take it. You know, he says, he says that the ones who overcome your name will never be blotted out is meant to be encouraging. Um, so what we have here is a, a, another promise here for eternal life. It's not a condemnation for those who don't do good enough. Uh, if that were the case, I wonder who among us would would dare to say that they were good enough to be accepted. But here's here's what th- that's the. Um, that's the crux of the teaching. But here's what I also want to say. I want to back it up with this. We can't just strip the teeth completely out of what is is um, is being said here. Uh, we also see throughout the New Testament. Now, I'm going to go to the other side. I want you to stay with me at the risk of you thinking I'm contradicting myself. We also see warnings throughout the New Testament for those who do not endure to the end. Uh, perseverance. Um, in the faith is is an evidence that one has truly been born again and i can prove that from many different passages so the the warning that is implicit in this text is a real warning uh and we should we should take it as such even though it is an encouragement for believers uh, i don't mean to say that the perfect salvation christ purchased for his people can ever fail it cannot he's a perfect savior he always saves perfectly and there is no one that can snatch God's children out of his hand. Now, I don't mean to say that a person who's become a new creature can somehow become an old creature again. I do not believe that with any fiber of my being, and I don't find it anywhere in the New Testament. And I'd be happy to go to the mat with anybody who says that they see that in the New Testament. I know there's a lot of people that do. Uh, if 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 you could lose your salvation, one th- one theologian said it this way: If you could lose your salvation, you would in the first five minutes. Um, but what this thing does tell us is that those who do not hold fast the profession of their faith, they don't have any grounds to be assured of their salvation. Now that's a little scary. Now what I'm saying can easily be misunderstood. So let me try to make it as plain as I can. Uh, the same writer who wrote Revelation also wrote the letter of First John, and in First John two nineteen, I got to preach this 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 Sunday. Is why it's fresh on my mind. It says that those who went out from among us were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt remained. But their going out made manifest that they were not of us. They were not all of us. So what he says there is simple. The proof that a person was never part of the brethren is the fact that at some point. They departed from the faith. We're not talking about leaving this church and going to that church. We're talking about departing from the faith. We're talking about returning to the world, returning to a a life of living for the world. 
John, the book of First John is replete with uh, uh, tests whereby you can know that you have eternal life. He says, if you do not live after God's commands, if you do not live after uh, Christ's commands, seeking to fulfill his commands, you have no grounds to be assured that you have salvation. I don't care what kind of prayer you prayed. I don't care what kind of aisle you walked down or anything like that. If you don't live a life and have a heart that desires his commands, are you doing it perfectly? No, we're not talking about being perfect. We're not talking about being sinless. We're talking about a heart that desires to serve Christ, a heart that desires to be a witness for him, a heart that desires to be to keep himself purified from the world. If uh, if you uh, if you don't have that, if you don't have um, if you don't have a heart that desires Christ and desires to serve him and to keep his commands, then you don't have any grounds of assurance at all. And any grounds of assurance that you think you might have by saying, you know, well, when I was 10, I went vacation Bible school and we did. That is not uh, that's not an evidence of salvation that John gives in his letters. And so while I don't believe that this passage in Revelation is teaching that a person can lose their salvation uh, to see it that way destroys the entire structural pattern of the letters themselves. So uh, there's just no way you can there's no way you can see it that way. Um, while I while I don't see it that way, I also recognize that there are many people who claim to be Christians who are not. Uh, they do not endure when persecution comes like Jesus gave the parable of the seeds. When person, when persecution comes, it says that, 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 that they begin to sprout that, uh, but the, you know, the, the sun burns it up or the thorns choke it out, uh, because it doesn't have root. Uh, they don't hold fast when the pressure to conform to the world infringes on their own pleasure or their own comfort. Instead, they're revealed to be exactly what they are. They are those to whom Christ will say, depart from me, not, you know, I knew you, but you went away, but depart from me. I never knew you, even though they'll argue and they'll say, but, but we, we cast demons out in your name and we preached and we prophesied. He says, I never, never knew you, but to those who hold fast to their profession and trust in Christ. The promise here is it's it should be encouraging, even if you're going through all kind of hard times, tough times. If you if you read the uh, the standards that Christ has for his people and you feel bad because you're not reaching them. Welcome to the human race. So the the promise is not meant to uh, uh, to to make you. Uh, to make you uh, spiral off into despair because you aren't doing good enough. Uh, none of us are doing good enough. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Christ. But the promise here is to let you know that when you stand for Christ, when you stand for him against the world, when you are a witness for him, there they can take a lot of things away from you. In Sardis, they could take your citizenship. They could uh, accuse you of a capital crime. Uh, Irenaeus and Polycarp, two perfect examples, uh, right in the midst of the first century, early second century, that were killed, that were that were murdered because they refused to uh, they refused to conform to the culture. They refused to honor the gods. They refused to honor Caesar in Polycarp's case. Uh, so they could take a lot of things from you in Sardis. They could take away your finances. They could take away pretty much everything that you had, everything that you own, including your life. But the promise here is that if you stand fast for me, he said, I'll never blot your name out of my book. I'll never remove your citizenship. 
you will always, always um, have uh, what I have given you. So it's a promise of encouragement. It's a promise that should uh, that should bring joy to us. Um, to those who hold fast to their profession and trust in Christ, their names, your names, will never be blotted out. They are eternally secure in Christ.